Good evening, everybody. Welcome back again to, let's see, this is 16, isn't it? I think it's 16. And before we begin, our topic is Babylon Rising. And before we start, let's have a word of prayer together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your goodness and mercy and for blessing us. As we open this study tonight, we need the Holy Spirit to be present. Help us to understand the things we read, the things that we learn. And above all, may we take our stand on the side of the Scripture and on the side of our Lord Jesus. We pray, send us the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to mention to you, we're going to be talking about Babylon rising. First off, the word Babylon means confusion. What is it? It's a confusion in the religious world. It's a confusion of a syncretism, a blending together of Christianity and biblical teaching with pagan thought and philosophies that have crept in. And I want you to understand that tonight, because of the fact that the religious world today is facing so many different challenges from so many different directions, we may have some thoughts that I'm sure some of the things we're going to talk about may cross. And please, I want you to understand, we are not talking about people. We're talking about scripture. We're talking about history. We're talking about the theological teachings. Okay, so it's not meant to offend anyone. It's meant to give you an understanding as to why and where many of these thoughts come from. It's interesting that my mother, her name was Helen, and she was born in Troy, New York. And so we used to call her Helen of Troy. And in Greek mythology or Greek history, we find that during the Trojan War, It was a Greek princess by the name of Helen from Sparta who went to live with Paris, who was the king of Troy. And this infuriated her husband, and it launched a 10-year war between Troy and Sparta. And it went back and forth. This is the reason why, because it was mainly a naval battle, This is the reason why they said Helen had the face that launched a thousand ships. We used to tell my mother she had the face that sunk a thousand ships. (laughs) Just teasing her, of course. But uh, she used to get a rise out of that. And I almost got a rise (laughs) from her for saying it. But anyway, the Trojans and the, the Greeks fought back and forth for 10 years. And it was kind of a stalemate. Finally, instead of resorting to military tactics, the Greeks got a bright idea and they resorted to trickery. It just so happens that they had built this big horse out of wood. And they had a fellow, one of their uh, men, who was actually a spy, infiltrate Troy, and he told them that That horse 
if they brought it inside, would make them invincible, that they couldn't be defeated. And so at night, all the Greeks hid, and they brought the horse in and shut the gates. And they waited to be blessed by this creature that they had just brought inside. During the night, Greek soldiers inside the horse opened it up from the inside. They got out and they went over and opened the doors in the gate, in the wall. And all of the Greek soldiers who were hiding outside infiltrated the city and the city was brought down. Why was that so successful? Because it was deceptive. It was deceiving. They thought they would get a blessing from having this horse in there, but actually it worked to their demise. You know, the devil's a trickster from long ago. And if you notice that he tried to deceive and to defeat the people of God in the past by using persecution, he tried many different ways to destroy the truth of God and the people of God. And the devil decided, rather than to oppose the church, he joined the church. It's easier to deceive from within sometimes than it is from the outward attacks. This is the reason why the Bible mentions that in the last days, even Satan, as we get closer to the time of the end, Satan would appear as an angel of light. If he came with a pitchfork, you wouldn't pay any attention to him. Well, you would. You'd probably get out of there. But if he came as an angel of light, you would be attracted to him. And so we find that the devil knows that. Now, if you remember from our earlier studies, and in the book of Daniel, we really go into this more in depth, that in the past, the beasts that came out of the water represented nations or powers, okay? The water represented people or populated areas. And as the beasts came out, he used different kinds. There were times when he used the bear beast, the lion beast, and so forth. Out of this, we find coming out of the water a nondescript beast that Revelation 13 talks about. And in Revelation 13, it says, verses 1 through 4, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. A blasphemous name. Hmm. So apparently, if we're talking about blasphemy, we are talking about a religious power. And yet it's a beast because the beast, it, this isn't a put-down to say, you know, something is a, a beast. It simply means it can be a good beast or a bad beast. A beast simply means a nation or a power. Okay? And then it goes on to say, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth was like the mouth of a lion. 
and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. So in plain words, this beast that comes up is exercising religious authority as well as being a nation. And it's kind of a conglomerate beast. In the book of Daniel, it talks about a leopard beast. It also talks about a bear beast. It also talks about a lion beast. Remember Nebuchadnezzar we ran into earlier. Uh, he was the head of gold. If you look the chapter beyond that, it, Daniel tells him that the lion beast that he saw represented Babylon. So you can see that these are representing nations. What is it? This beast that comes up now, he takes different elements of all of the former teachings of past religions, past cultures, and he kind of blends them together and makes it more formidable to uh, contend against. The dragon, that of course we found before, represents Satan. He's the one that gives him the power. Okay? And you may wonder why there's so much spiritualism and so forth that is creeping into Christianity. Don't forget, when you start uh, when you start fooling around with, say, witchcraft, you're actually inviting the devil into your house and into your life. And the devil, of course, is very much behind spiritualism. As we look on, it says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So in plain words, this beast-like power is seeking worship. Remember, that's the thing that the devil wants most of all. He wants worship. He doesn't care how he gets it. He wants worship. He tried to deceive Jesus into worshiping him. But Jesus didn't. He resisted it. And so we find that this is a religious, religio-political power that's coming up. And it says, who can stand against him? I mean, the influence of this power is so great that how do we make war with him? You see, you can go bomb a nation but how do you bomb a religion how do you bomb a a thought or a philosophy you see that's rather difficult to do and so this beast that comes up we need to remember that satan always has a counterfeit for everything that's true and the more we study what is truth, that's the way we determine what the counterfeit is. Because the devil has numerous counterfeits in many cases for one truth. And so as we look at the word of God, this becomes the objective criteria for which to discover what is truth and what is error. And also what is Jesus like. Now let's take a look at the description 
that the Bible gives of this power. There are certain characteristics that are brought out. Number one is this beast power. Remember we talked earlier about the lamb representing Jesus. Jesus rose as the lamb of God because he was the sacrifice for man. And Jesus also, we find, can be represented, in this case, differently. When we talked about the second beast that came up a few nights back, it looked like a lamb, but yet it spoke like a dragon. So we find that this lamb-like beast that comes up, it comes up out of the water. It comes up among the people. It can't be in the new world. That's the wilderness area. So it must come up where it's a heavily populated area if water represents people. Notice that both Jesus and the beast, it talks about them exercising power for three and a half years. How long did Jesus' ministry on earth last? Three and a half years. Remember when we talked about the 70-week period that last week consisted of seven days, and in the midst, a day is a year, in the midst of that week he would be cut off, not for himself, but for the people. And so Jesus, from the time he was baptized to the time he was crucified, was only three and a half years. And then it was another three and a half years before the stoning of Stephen and the Apostle Paul comes on the scene. Both Jesus and the beast power receive a deadly wound. Jesus got his at the cross. This beast power historically would get a wound and it would kill it as a nation. But it would still have its religious influence. It would kill it as a nation. But note that just as Jesus resurrected and came back to life, so did the beast power. The wound would be healed. And I have something that will verify that. Both received worship and honor. Jesus receives worship. He is honored. He is exalted. But the beast power is also Both seek to lead all the world. So you can see that this is a counterfeit that would come up. A counterfeit means of salvation. All right, let's look. Revelation 14, 9 and 10, it says, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So there's also a mark of the beast, but there's also the seal of God. That's why I call it the mark of the beast and the mark of the best, you see. And they both receive a mark. And where does God want to put that mark? Right here in your forehead, your frontal lobe. Now, The last time we talked about fitness and health. Why? Because what is the devil after? If he can get a hold of your mind, your thoughts, and if he can mess up your brain, your hand or your actions, 
are going to follow suit. If he can deceive your mind, he can get you to do bad things thinking that you are pleasing God. Think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, when he was persecuting the Christians, throwing them in jail and even killing them, he thought he was doing this to the glory of God. During the Middle Ages, we find that there were those who would burn people at the stake, thinking that they were pleasing God, you see. It shows you how the devil can deceive you. And this is the reason why we must stay close to the Word of God and stay close to the Savior and allow the Holy Spirit to guide and lead in our lives. And so, where's a good example of this? Where's a pattern that we can follow? Let's look first at Revelation 14, 9 and 10. Notice it says, which is poured out, the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength in the cup of his indignation. If you are indignant about something, what does that mean? You think God's indignant about some of these things? Today, there are those who will slit your throat thinking that this will glorify God. And that they will go straight to heaven if they die by blowing themselves up. You see. You know, do you think that God's a little indignant about that? It says the wrath of God. Wrath implies something more. In the book of Daniel, again, we find that God tells us that he gives us the keys. He gives us the basic things for helping us interpret the book of Revelation, and understand the things that are coming upon the earth. And here we find that in the book of Daniel, he talks about a lion-like beast. In chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, there are four beasts that are coming out of the sea in this prophecy. And in Daniel 7:23, it also talks in particular about the fourth beast, because that's the one people and Daniel in particular, was most concerned. He understood Babylon because it was right in front of him. He was living in the time of Babylon. And notice, it was the kingdom of the beast was the lion. It had eagle-like wings. Why? Because the eagle is the king of the birds. Wings also emphasize swiftness. And so we find that this particular beast was powerful. It was glorious. And in chapter 17 of Daniel, it says, The waters which you saw where the horse sits are people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. This is why the beast is coming out of the water. Because there are many nations who are following what it calls in 17, the horror of Babylon. Now, what does that mean? There are only two women that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. One is the pure, chaste virgin. The other is the whore of Babylon, or the prostitute of Babylon. What does prostitution mean? It means that it was taking in many false religions. It was taking in many different philosophies and teachings. And the most descriptive way they could 
described this was to say she was a prostitute. Why? Because she's supposed to be married to God. She's supposed to be married to Christ, her husband. But instead, she's chasing these false gods and bringing in some of their teachings, you see. And so you have a conflict between the pure and the polluted. And it's the dragon who gives power to the polluted. And as we look further, it talks about another beast. So it apparently is going to pick up a lot of Babylonian ideas and carry them on. How many minutes are there in an hour? Okay. How many degrees are there in a circle? 360. You know what? You just told me some of the things about Babylonian religion. It was based around the number six. 60 minutes, 360 degrees. This was a lot of their teaching that had come in. And uh, a lot of it, astrology was wrapped into it because it's based on the numbers game. Also, we find that there's another beast that is mentioned, and that's a bear. Now, didn't we just see a conglomerate beast coming up out of the sea that was part lion, part bear? And we, the, the scripture tells us that this bear power is Medo-Persia. It's the Persian Empire. Now, in Daniel 2, this was the chest of silver, right? And it's interesting. I mentioned to you before that when you approach the book of Revelation and you approach the book of Daniel, they both use a principle that you should be aware of. And that is, it's called recapitulation. That's a fancy name. It simply means repeat and expand. He repeats it under different symbols, but he tells you more detail. So those who try to read these books consecutively and aren't aware of this, they may have different powers coming up when he's really talking about the same thing repeated. Here, in the book of Daniel, Daniel uh, even identifies that as Medo-Persia. Now notice it had three ribs in its mouth. When it came up, it consumed or it conquered three kingdoms in the process. One was Babylon, one was Lydia, and the other was Egypt. It conquered these powers. It took them over, you see, and incorporated them in. Now, a lion is more glorious than a bear. But I'll tell you, I wouldn't want to mess around with a bear, would you? It may be cumbersome, more cumbersome than a lion, but it can still be a formidable enemy. And so this came in. And then later on, who defeated the Persians? Well, thank you. But in particular, I'm thinking of Alexander and the Greeks, right? Okay, Alexander, and by the way, it had four wings. He was twice as fast as the Babylonians were. This is where Hitler got his concept of blitzkrieg. Anybody of you remember that term? Blitzkrieg means lightning warfare. He'd hit, leave some soldiers there to settle things down and move on 
before the people in front of him knew he was coming. And this is what Alexander did. And so you can see it has four wings. Notice it had four heads. The leopard family is the fastest of the cats. And so this was a very fast empire. Alexander's the one that founded it. But when Alexander died, there were four of his generals that took over his empire. Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and um, Seleucus. So these broke his empire up. The Seleucus, he took over what is now called Syria, that area, okay? And Ptolemy, he took over Egypt. And these others, they just kind of broke up the other parts. Those other two would eventually be conquered, and there would be two powers that would struggle against each other. That's why in the Bible, you've got the Egyptians and you've got the Syrians constantly butting heads. They all grew out of Alexander's empire. The last pharaoh of Egypt was Cleopatra. And yes, she was a pharaoh. She was the last pharaoh of Egypt. And why did the Egyptians hate Cleopatra? Because she was not a native Egyptian. She was descended from the Greeks, you see. And a lot of the Greek philosophy that we have today has crept in to our society. For instance, the word democracy itself, the form of government, that's a Greek idea. That's not a Babylonian idea, democracy. It's a Greek idea. And there are many of these things that have infiltrated even to our modern time. And then after that, Daniel saw a nondescript beast. Well, if it's nondescript, you can make it look like whatever you want it to look like, as long as it has the characteristics. But this particular beast had teeth of iron. It had claws that were made of iron. And it went around stomping on God's people. Edward Gibbons, in his Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, he talks about different names that were given to these empires. And he mentions that Rome was the Iron Empire. But Rome, did it go around stomping on the, it says the residue of God's people. What's another word for residue? It's remnant. And he would go around and try to stamp out God's people. What did Herod try to do? He tried to kill the babies before Jesus was born. And he also, well, actually, Jesus had already been born. He was a little late. But he also went around stomping on God's people, persecuting God's people, putting Christ on the cross. It was during the time of the Romans. But after the Roman Empire, it would break down and it would have in its place ten horns that would come up. The Roman Empire divided into ten different subdivisions. That's a brief run-through of many of Daniel's prophecies. But as we look further, it said out of, now this is important, so catch this point. It was out of 
the Roman Empire, after the Roman Empire collapses, among these ten horns would come a little horn. Now this little horn was fascinating to Daniel. He spent more time on the little horn than he did the rest of them because it was so different. He says it was stouter, which means it had power that was different from the others. It had eyes. Eyes are a sign of intelligence. I remember when I was teaching school, the kids in front of me, I would try to guess what their IQ was before I gave them an IQ test. And I would look them straight in the eye. And you know what? I found that I was pretty good at guessing within a certain range what their IQ was by looking at their eyes. It was a sign of intelligence. It's also a sign of overseeing. So we find that this little power came up, but it also had a mouth to speak with authority. But notice what it says. It, when it came up, it says it ripped up three of those ten horns. So when did Rome fall? Rome fell in the year 476 officially. When Romulus Augustulus, who was a teenager, was forced to, off the throne, they dissolved the, the uh, emperor of the Roman Empire, then later on, they would even the Senate and the consuls, they would dissolve them. And we move into the dark ages. We move into the time when even though religion was starting to rule, it's still called the dark ages, you see. Because the light of Rome was being extinguished as this little horn comes up. Now, this little horn rips up three powers as it comes along. History tells us that as it came up, there were three nations of the original ten who did not go along with the teachings of the little horn. And they were ripped up as it came to power. Notice what it says. I was considering the horns... And there was another horn, a little one. So this nation that came up would be a small nation, but it had a lot of influence. Notice in Daniel 7, 8, it says, The ten horns are ten kings and shall arise from this kingdom, speaking of Rome, and another shall rise after them and this little horn power, notice the characteristics. It was a small nation. It also was among the, the ten. Where were the ten? They were in Europe. They were in Western Europe. Okay? When did Rome fall? 476? It would have to come up after 476. And it would pluck up three horns in the process, it would pluck up three of the ten as it came to power. Why? Because they were in its way. And it says it had eyes like a man. It was supervising 
and also it used these other horns to do its will. As we look further, notice what it says. As we look at the comparison. See, there are nine comparisons here that help us to zero in on what's happening. It says that it would speak great words. Now, when it, in the context, it's when it speaks of great words, it means blasphemous words. Now, what is blasphemy? It means claiming powers that only belong to God. You see what I mean? This is what the word blasphemy means. As a matter of fact, we find that Jesus, what's one of the things that the Jews were so bent out of shape with him for? It says in the scripture that they said, well, we're not mad at you because you're doing good works. We're mad at you because you claim that you can, what? You can forgive sins, you see. And they, it says right in the scriptures, only God can forgive sins. A man cannot. Well, I mean, if I took your wallet, I'd say, you know, brother, I'm sorry. Here's your wallet back. You know, and he says, that's right, brother, I forgive you. Of course, I didn't tell him I took all the money out of it. <laughs> I gave him his wallet back. But anyway, he can say, I forgive you. Well, that's on a human level. But he can't forgive my sins of murder, or my sins of blasphemy against God. If I am claiming powers that only belong to God, he can't forgive me. Only God can. But the little horn power that comes up claims it can forgive sins, you see. And as a result, the Bible says that that is blasphemous. All right. Now also, it would persecute we find all through the Middle Ages, there were a lot of persecutions that have gone on. As a matter of fact, in the name of the Lord, we don't know how many for sure people were burned to death at the stake, drawn and quartered, killed, because they stood for the word of God. In the Middle Ages, there was a group of people called the Waldenses. The Waldenses were in the Alps area of northern Italy and Switzerland. And they were missionaries. And they believed in the word of God as the basis of our salvation. And what they would do is they would take the scriptures and they would, just a, a portion of it, and they would sew it into their garments. And then they would go around peddling pots and pans and things. And if they found what they thought was a person who was very sincere in wanting to do God's will, they would leave them with that portion of the scriptures. Sometimes whole books they had tucked away. But if these Waldenses were captured, they would be put to death. They would be burned at the stake. And the word of God is now locked up in a dead language. It's locked up in a dead language. It's chained to the walls of universities and churches and so forth. 
And of course, you've got to realize it wasn't until the printing press that they could make a lot of copies. You know, to buy a copy of the scripture would cost a lot of money. But if you had one, you could be in big trouble. And they were persecuted. Notice that the little horn power would seek to change times and laws. I look at my watch. Hmm, it's almost 10.30 by my watch. <laughs> See, I changed times. Does that make it true? By the way, that was an accident. I didn't really mean to do that. My watch is crazy. But uh, I can seek to change times. I can tell you I've changed times. But has God made any changes? He says, I change not. You see, I can seek to change laws, even the laws of God, even the commandments of God. If I say, Tony, it's okay for you to kill. Do I have the authority to tell you that? For me to tell you that is blasphemy, you see. And so we find that this power that would come up would take a lot of liberties and people would follow it. That's why it's called the Dark Ages. Even though during this time you had religion prevailing, it was still considered the Dark Age. Why? Because the type of things that were coming up were not in harmony with the light of Jesus' teaching. Notice it would rule for 1,260 years. All right. There were those who used to teach that President Reagan was the beast because they worked out his name and it came up to 666. Therefore, Ronald Reagan was the beast. Well, I got news for you. Ronald Reagan um, may have been old when he became president. But you see, he only reigned for eight years, right? He didn't reign for 1,260 years. That's a long time period. And the Bible tells you how to calculate that. And so... The people looking at these things began to try to interpret it. These nine identifying marks that are found in both Daniel and Revelation. And as they turned to the scriptures and they began to look at this, they began to see that there were inconsistencies that were creeping into Christianity. Now, a lot of these things were by well-meaning people, you see. But as you get away from the word of God and start going to philosophy, what does Aristotle say? What does Copernicus say? Uh, what does uh, Euclid say? You start getting away from what did Jesus say? What did Paul say? And James and the other Bible writers. And as a result, a lot of this stuff began to creep in. And Christianity at this time starts to lose its power. And since the gospel isn't converting people, then if you want to convert people, if you can't do it through the power of the word, the sword of God, the Bible's called the sword of God. If you can't convert it with the sword of God, then what's your next alternative? Convert people with the sword of the state. You see. And you find... Blending was church 
and state. Now, it just so happens as we move toward the 1500s, along on the scene comes a fellow by the name of Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther wasn't the first. John Wycliffe, way back, well, actually before that, Peter Waldo was in the 11 and 1200s. That's where we get the name Waldensians. And then John Wycliffe comes along in the 1300s. When you get to the 1400s, you start getting into John Huss. John Huss said, we have to get back to the Bible and away from some of these teachings of the church. And you know what happened? They burned him at the stake. The name, the Bohemian name, Huss, means goose. And that's where we have the expression today, your goose is cooked. If you try to go against what everybody else says, you see? So some of that has lingered over to modern times. You see that many of these reformers were coming on the scene. Their purpose was not to break away from the church. It was to purify the church. But the church wouldn't be purified. They resisted it. And as a result, Luther got himself excommunicated. There were others who came up as well. You find that John Calvin and Knox and some of the others who came up, and they were saying, no, some of these things needed to be reformed. Didn't say that we want new teachings. We want to reform it. We want to cleanse it and get this out. And thus, they took on the name, eventually, Reformers, and it was called the Reformation in the 1500s and beyond. And even back in the time of St. Jerome, St. Jerome was translating the Bible from the original language into Latin. And St. Jerome, as he was translating this, he began to look at some of these prophecies, and that's way back in the 400s. Rome hadn't even fallen yet, you see. Well, actually, Rome, by the time Jerome comes, Rome had fallen. But he was looking at the church of his day, and he was saying, hey, you know, there's a lot of this stuff that's creeping in here that uh, kind of goes along with what these prophecies are talking about. When by the time you got to St. Augustine, Augustine was saying, yeah, you know, there are some of these things that are creeping in the church that shouldn't be. And so we find that the purpose was to cleanse the church and get back to the scriptures, not what religious leaders said or thought. Now, as you look at these nine identifying marks, these are the ones that all through the centuries people have been looking at and trying to figure out what is this little horn power. Well, let's see. They began to point at the Vatican. I'll be blunt with you. Please forgive me. This is not against the people. It's against the power, the religious teachings, the uh, uh, theology and the history. Okay? So please don't be offended because there are a lot of things Protestants did wrong too. So let's turn and look. First off, they began to look to Rome. 
Is Rome a little power? Is it a nation today? Yeah, it is. Vatican City is the smallest nation on earth. It's about the size of an 18-hole golf course. I've been there. I've walked around it. And it's not very big. But yet, you know, if Billy Graham came to Washington, D.C., they would not build a big platform at government expense and uh, let him preach because he's a religious leader. But if the king of Vatican City, which is a nation, comes, they can build him a platform at taxpayer expense because he is the king of a nation, just like they would do for Queen Elizabeth, you see. Chances are she wouldn't preach. But it's a little nation. So where does its power really come from? It's not from its physical relationship. I've seen the Swiss Guard. They're not much of an army. I mean, if they attacked the United States, America could go and blow them away. It's just a little tiny army. But where does it get its real power? By the control of people's thoughts and minds and hearts. This is where it comes from. And this is what the reformers were looking at because some of the things that were being preached and taught were not biblical. And they were saying, hey, come on, guys, come back because we've got different councils, we've got different bishops who are contradicting each other. Instead of what you think and what you think, what does the scripture say? What does Jesus say? Did it come up in Western Europe? Well, last I knew it was in Italy, right? So it comes up according to the biblical description. When did it come up? It had to come up after 476 A.D. It was not until after 476 that the uh, Pope was given authority by the Roman emperor, to be a corrector of heretics. He was to be the corrector of Christianity. And when did that happen? It happened in the year 538 A.D. Jot that number down. 538. Actually, it was the Ostrogoths who were keeping him from... He really got the authority from the Emperor Justinian, if I remember correctly. He got the authority from Justinian 30 years earlier. But he couldn't do it because he was surrounded by the Ostrogoths. Now, the Ostrogoths did not accept papal supremacy. There were three of the original ten tribes that did not accept the authority of the Pope. And the Ostrogoths were occupying Rome. There were the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. So here he is surrounded. He was given by the Roman emperor this authority to correct heretics, but he couldn't enforce it. So what does he do? He conspires with the king of France. At this time, I believe it was either Pippin or Clovis. I think it might have been Clovis. And he says, 
if you come in and get rid of my enemies, I will let you have a certain amount of territory, you know, property. And he also talked about the Germans, they would call the Alemanni in those days, if you come in and you get rid of these Ostrogoths for me, I will give you their territory. This is why in the Second World War, when Hitler went into, what? Austria, which was where the Ostrogoths used to be. Hitler went in and people said, oh, you can't do that, you're invading another nation. He says, no, it's ours because the Pope told us we could do it if we got rid of the Ostrogoths. It's ours, you see. Reaching back, claiming these ancient gifts that he gave. And the Vandals, we get the word vandalism from them, they were just driven back into North Africa and were done away with. So what was it? It was genocide. So it was 30 years later in 538 when now he is free to reign as the religious leader of Europe. Now, what did he do? He plucked up three of the powers that did not subscribe to his authority. All right, what else does it say? It said he had eyes like a man. What is the papacy called? The Holy See. The Holy See. There were actually five Holy Sees up until the 1400s, technically. It's interesting. They were Alexandria, Egypt, Jerusalem, Antioch of Syria, Constantinople, and Rome. What happened? You see, up would come out of the Arabian desert because of the corruption that was in the church. There was a fellow there who was seeing the corruption in the church. He says, I can't buy into Christianity. And because of his ancient hatreds, he couldn't buy into Judaism. He knew paganism was wrong, so he kind of blended them together. His name was Muhammad. And as Muhammad came up in the 600s, now don't forget, the papacy was in 538. And the Arabs are watching this. We find, actually, that a lot of the territory we're trying to gain back today for Christianity was Christian before the Mohammedans came up. What happened eventually in their conflict? Jerusalem falls to the Arabs, to the Muslims. Alexandria, Egypt, falls to the Muslims. That's why there are still Christians in uh, Egypt called the Coptic Christians. They were there before it fell to the Muslims. What happened to Syria? Antioch of Syria became Muslim. And finally, they were banging on the door of Constantinople, and eventually that became Muslim. So what happened? These four holy sees fell, leaving one left. And this is how Rome began to come up in strength and power. Now, it said that it would speak blasphemous words. Does it claim to forgive sins? How does that affect 
if you can go to a, a, a pastor and say, I've just committed adultery I've, or I've some murder or something, forgive my sins. He says, you're forgiven. Go do an indulgence and you're forgiven. Well, if you do that, that interferes with you taking it to the supreme priest who is in heaven, you see. And this is what was happening because in the time of Martin Luther, they were building St. Peter's Cathedral. And there was a fellow by the name of Tetzel who went around selling indulgences. I have some indulgences at home. When my mother died, my mother was raised in a Catholic orphanage, and when she died, all of our Catholic relatives bought mass cards. And it, it said right on this card that I had that it said it was an indulgence and that it would, by purchasing this, it would free her from, I don't know, so many years of suffering. You see, this is what was happening because when they built St. Peter's Cathedral, they said Martin Luther found one of his parishioners. He said, you need to come to confession tomorrow. He says, oh, I don't have to go to confession anymore. He says, all my sins are forgiven. And Martin said, who told you that? He says, I have this paper. And it was from Rome. And he opened it up. And it says right there that all my sins of the past, of the present, and of the future are forgiven. You know? If, if I'm forgiven my sins for the future, if I was a bank robber in the past, and my sins are forgiven, and it's for the future also, then I might as well go rob some more banks, make it worth my while. You can see the influence it had. And this is what really bent Martin Luther out of shape. And he nails his 95, 95 different things that he had, that he was complaining against. And so we find that they would speak blasphemous words. Now, blasphemy also is claiming to be God or in the place of God. When Jesus left this earth and went back to heaven, he said, I will send you another comforter. Who was that comforter? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Christ's representative on earth. For a human being to say that I am the official representative of God on earth is claiming a power that Jesus gave to the Holy Spirit, you see. And so these words, blasphemy, uh, have much um, potency in them. Look at John ten thirty three. it says, The Jews answered him, saying, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then Pope Leo the Thirteenth, he said this in his encyclical letter. And this is as late as 1890. So, The supreme teacher of the church is the Roman pontiff. That word pontiff is short for Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex Maximus was a term 
that was used by the Roman emperors. It means the great bridge. The Roman emperors believed that they were the bridge between heaven and earth. And the only way you get to heaven is through them. That's why they had emperor worship, you see. And so this crept in. It says, union of minds, therefore, requires, together with a perfect accord in one faith. I wonder what that one faith would be. Complete submission and obedience to the will of the church and to the Roman pontiff as to God himself. You will obey him as if he is God. As a matter of fact, Julius II, Pope Julius II, went so far to say that the Pope is God on earth. My friends, that makes me nervous. That makes me think, is that blasphemous? Notice what else it goes on to say. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. And if you don't subscribe to us, why, you can bear the consequences. Look at Luke 5.21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So, as we look at these things, we find the little horn would speak words of blasphemies. He would persecute, and he would think to change times and laws. Did the church do that? Well, the church claims that it did. And I read to you in some of the other um, lectures that we've had, some of the statements where the church readily admits that it changed the commandments of God. If you look at your catechism, you will find the second commandment about images gone. That leaves nine. You look at the one about the Sabbath, and it's been changed from Saturday to Sunday, for which there's no scriptural authority. And then you look at the last commandment against coveting, It's cut in half. You don't cover your neighbor's wife. You don't cover your neighbor's good. It's been split. If you look in the scriptures, these are the three longest commandments. They're the three longest commandments. And even even the one that uh, relates to the Sabbath, you notice it's been reduced to the Reader's Digest version. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, period. It doesn't say what day of the week it is. It could be Tuesday, Thursday, or Friday, you see, according to that. But the scripture is descriptive. And so we find that it has been gaining in power. Now, what happened? Let me go back to that last slide. Up until the time of Napoleon Bonaparte, That's the end of the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s. We find that the Pope was trying to tell Napoleon what to do. Napoleon didn't like being told what to do. And so what did he do? He sent into Rome a general by the name of Berthier. Now, up to that time, Roman persecutions were going on. 
people were being imprisoned. Well, you know, the Inquisition. That was happening all through this time. What happens? He sends Berthier in. Berthier arrests the Pope, takes him back to France, and the Pope dies in jail. And even in the United States, if you go to the United States uh, Congressional Library and you look it up in the newspapers, you will find the newspapers of that day had printed right across the headlines that the beast is wounded, a deadly wound. Why? Because he was no longer a nation. He confiscated the property. He was no longer a nation. All he had was the religious authority. And people were turned off because of the persecution. It also, in 1798, another thing happened. And that is, that's when the Rosetta Stone was discovered. In Egypt, by the French. And the Rosetta Stone had three different languages on it. Two of them they could read, the other one they couldn't. But it said the same thing here and the same thing there, so they figured it said the same thing there. And I think his name was Champollion. He spent the rest of his life, pretty much, translating that, and that gave them the ability to read the Egyptian hieroglyphics. And in the Egyptian hieroglyphics, it talked about things that were spoken of in the scriptures. And it also told events that are mentioned in the book of Daniel. And people began to get interested in the book of Daniel. And as they studied the book of Daniel, they studied the prophecy, they studied history, and they began to put these things together, they began to see that the Lord was talking about calling people out of this confusion, Babylonian confusion, and preparing them for the coming of the Lord. And so we find that that deadly wound, though, it said, would be healed. Well, did that come true? In, I believe it was September 1929, Eugenio Priscelli was the one who helped to... Uh, uh, formulated, he would later become Pius XII. I was born under Pius XII when he was Pope. But at the time, it was Pope Leo, and I don't remember which number that was in power. But the Vatican made an arrangement with Mussolini, Benito Mussolini, that Mussolini would restore to them their nationhood. And Mussolini said if the Vatican would recognize him. Well, Mussolini, his character wasn't much better than that of Hitler. But anyway, so what did Mussolini do? He says, okay, officially I return to you this 18-hole golf course. It is now a nation again. Before it was a nation, before... Berthier took him. Now it is restored. And the scripture said that when the deadly wound was healed, that the power of this little horn beast 
would grow and become influential. My friends, did it? Well, during the 1980s, two men got together. You see, John Paul II was very, very skilled uh, politician. And he and Ronald Reagan had a common enemy. That was Russia. If they could bring down Russia by uniting together and bring communism down, that would leave, people say, one superpower, actually two superpowers, the church and the United States. But the game plan on all of this was revealed, and by the way, I have that very magazine, and I have this very book at home. A fellow by the name of Malachi Martin, who was a friend of John Paul, in here he reveals what John Paul's battle plan was. And that was first to bring down atheistic communism and then the phase two was to bring down the economic decadent West, meaning in particular the United States and Europe. And the best way to bring them down was through their economies. Thus leaving the church as the only real superpower in the world. Have you ever noticed that this Cuban treaty, not treaty, but peace, or whatever you want to call it, that we have with Cuba, who, who brokered that? It was Pope Francis, wasn't it? It was the Vatican that did that. And you find that there are other things. What is, what is Francis advocating? First off, he actually made the statement that when they were having this uh, meeting over in, in Paris where they were talking about global warming, Francis, first off, is very much a believer in global warming, and he indicated that if they were not going to move in the direction of reforming, um, you know, cleaning up the atmosphere and so forth, he would personally go over there and tell them what to do. So we see some of these things creeping in. He does not believe in borders, that there, there should be free immigration into the United States, both from the South and from Europe. Well, what's happening in the United States? How is this affecting the economy of these nations? You see, behind the scenes, there are movements afoot that we are not aware of. And by the way, I'm not blaming it all on him. You know, you've got enough other leaders that are involved in all this. But Malachi Martin, and you can get this at a gospel bookstore anywhere, pretty much. Uh, in there, he tells a lot of what's going on behind the scenes. He says this, John Paul's goal is a geopolitical structure for the society of nations designed and maintained according to the ethical plans and doctrinal outlines of Christianity as taught and propagated by the Roman pontiff as the earthly vicar of Christ. What is he saying? The Pope claims that he is not only 
the religious authority over Catholicism. He's also the religious authority over Protestantism, over Islam, over Buddhism, over paganism. He is the religious authority in the world. You can believe whatever you want as long as you are submissive to him and his supremacy and his teachings. And so what do we find? The world today about us is chasing after this power and absorbing it. And who can fight against the beast, you see? Look further. The scripture tells us that as we approach the end of time, we're going to find that things will accelerate. And you will see more and more confusion taking place in the world. You will find good cop, bad cop popping up. Where people are playing both sides against the middle. Whoever wins, they still win. You know what I'm referring to. It's very common for people to play good cop, bad cop. I'll tell you one thing, and I'll tell him something else, and whichever one emerges, we say, see, I told you I was on his side in the beginning. You see. And these kind of things are happening, and there's a lot of secret societies who are also falling into this, seeking to form what is a one-world religion, hoping that they can have a one-world government, too. But they haven't apparently read Daniel 2, because in Daniel 2, it tells us that the rock would come and strike the image in the fee, and the whole human plans and history would collapse, and he would set up his own without the help of human beings in setting it up. No, the word is sure, and the interpretation of Scripture says it's sure. And I want to emphasize, I am not talking about people. I am talking about the geopolitical combination that is bringing in all kinds of confusion into the world. This is referred to as Babylon. And we find that, as we will study later, Protestantism is feeding in also to this Vatican agenda. Well, we were talking about some of the moral issues that are going on today. Matter of fact, some of you even wrote questions about certain kind of people, um, the position of the church is changed. The church doesn't change its position. You'll find in Vatican I and Vatican II and so forth, the church really didn't change its teaching. Protestants did. Did you ever notice they're no longer called Protestants? They're called evangelicals. You could be an atheist and be an evangelical. I have read into a woman who when I was in the Upper Peninsula, she was a pagan. And she said, I'm a born-again pagan. Okay. I have actually seen somebody with a jacket, and it says, evangelical paganism. You can be an evangelical anything, but what is a Protestant? It's one who protests 
and nobody's protesting. We're accepting a lot of these things that these men of old said, hey, let's get back to the scriptures and away from the traditions of men. Come back to the word of God. That's what God's calling us to tonight. And as we close, I want you to know that our salvation is found in Jesus Christ. He's the one that's the answer to this world pro- world's problems. He's the one that's going to bring an end to things. We are next time going to be getting into the mark of the beast. Now, I'm going to answer your question right up front, right now. People ask me, what is the mark of the beast? You're going to find that out tomorrow night. The question is, do people have the mark of the beast right now? And the answer is no. No. There are certain things that will happen that will bring in the mark of the beast. I mean, of course, you know, if you're following the beast now and you go out and get hit by a truck, for you, that is the mark of the beast, right? That's the end of all things. But there are more things that will develop that bring, bring it to a climax where people have to decide between what is God saying and what is man saying. And all the world will have to make a decision which side of the fence they're on. So come back tomorrow night for the rest of the story. Let's bow our heads and have prayer. Thank you, Lord God, for being with us, for blessing us in our study tonight. Forgive our sins, O Lord. It's not our purpose to blame, condemn, or point fingers at anybody. It's to present the word of God and to see what is happening about us and these different trends that are coming in and why. And Lord, we ask that you will give us wisdom to stand for the truth though the heavens fall. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.